I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today, I have a conversation with Dr. Miriam Zeringhalam. She's a scientist and the founder of the New York City branch of 500 Women Scientists. Miriam is trained as a molecular biologist, but she recently left academia to pursue a career in science policy and advocacy. Miriam is a really brilliant storyteller. She has her own podcast called Science Soapbox, and she's also a producer on Story Collider. It's a weekly show which brings personal stories about science to a live audience. We discuss Miriam's experiences as the daughter of immigrants and as an Iranian-American, both now during the Trump administration and during 9-11. We also talk about partisan gerrymandering and how constituents and scientists can help support science-based policies. So, without further ado, here is Dr. Miriam Zeringhalam. Dr. Miriam Zeringhalam, welcome to the podcast. Um, Thank you for having me. So you come from a family of scientists, and both your parents are scientists, including your mother, who is one of the top doctors in New York. Was there an expectation that you'd always go into science? You know, I I can't really say what my parents expected me to do. I was broadly interested in a lot of things. I think at one point I wanted to be a poet, a veterinarian, an astronaut, as you know, most young children are want to be. But, you know, my my dad has his background in physics and my mom, she's a doctor. And they never really put any kind of pressure on me to do what they were doing with their lives. But those were sort of the models that I had when I was growing up. And, you know, I trace my interest back interest in science back to being a kid who was very much afraid of dolls, just like completely terrified. And I still am. I see one and I start hyperventilating and it's embarrassing and problematic. But the sorts of toys that I grew up with were Legos. Um, They were what my parents gave me. And I was obsessed with them, just being able to piece together these building blocks to build you know, an airplane or a roller coaster or a city. And I loved the way that they came together to create something. And that translated to me eventually, you know, later in my life um, in the ninth grade when I took my first biology class and we were dissecting a fetal pig. And I was looking into this pig and thinking like, holy cow, There are all of these different parts, and if I wasn't poking and prodding at them, they would come together to make a pig that is oinking and rolling around in the mud and just being a pig. And I started to extrapolate that to my own organs and all of the parts in me that are coming together to make me speak and think and write and read. And I became you know, my my fascination for Legos grew into a fascination for the biological building blocks that make us who we are. And over the course of learning more about biology and becoming more and more interested, sort of at my own curiosity, guided by my own curiosity, um, and not really anything that my parents told me to do or be, uh, I found my way to molecular biology and genetics because DNA is the ultimate building block. It's A, C, G, and T, four letters that make all of the complexity and richness that we see in the world around us. 
So your parents are American citizens, and they are originally from Iran. And I only bring this up because in Iran, women are heavily involved in science. And I think it's something like 70%, or at least the majority of students that we'd refer to as being in STEM disciplines are women. Is that correct? So actually, it's uh, more like 70% of students in the sciences and engineering disciplines are women. Um, I'm not really sure on the exact statistics of the STEM workforce in Iran. But I think for me, having role models that were, you know, my mom was a doctor, is a doctor. My aunt is a computer engineer. My cousin is a civil engineer. And so I grew up around these women who were making it in STEM fields. And that was really what was modeled for me growing up. And so I didn't grow up feeling like my interest in the sciences was anything unique or special. And that's kind of the nice thing about growing up with parents who are immigrants because they've not yet been indoctrinated with the culture of America where it is more unique for a woman to be interested in playing with Legos and less so dolls um, and interested in engineering and coding and biology because those are typically male things here in the States. And that sort of role modeling was hugely helpful for me looking back at it in hindsight. I mean, even in my undergraduate work, when I went to NYU, all of my professors and mentors, or most of them were men, but they were men who were very cognizant and conscious of the gender gap in science. And so they made sure in teaching science and talking about the contributions of of science historically, that for every Watson and Crick, they talked about the contributions of Rosalind Franklin, without whom the discovery of the double helix would have been impossible. And so that, to me, drove home the importance and the place of women and made it feel initially, as I was getting started in my career, like my interest in science was completely nothing special at all. My interest and my success and ability to succeed in science. You know, what I think you've just described is what a lot of people and organizations, at least in the U.S., you know, they're working to, they're striving for, they're working to increase diversity in science and they're pushing for a greater inclusion of women in science. And I'm just curious as to whether your female peers had less confidence than yourself given that they may have grown up without those same influences and role models. You know, I think that's a really great question, but unfortunately, I wasn't aware of the gender gap in science, that that there are women who feel disempowered to proceed in a career in STEM until really my graduate career started because I was so, I had so many amazing role models of women in science throughout history and in my own life and mentors and professors who really lifted me up. And I thought that this was just representative of any woman in science's experience. But I got to graduate school and I immediately was struck by there's about 72 professors at my university and only eight or nine of them were women. And so immediately within this very small university setting, I see the gender gap played out. And so it was only then that I started getting more and more curious about the experiences of uh, my fellow peers in, in graduate school. And, you know, obviously these are women who have made it through 
high school believing that they can do science, pursue science. They made it through college believing they could do and pursue science. And now they're in graduate school or in postdocs feeling like they can continue doing this. So I will, that is the big caveat to my discussions with them is obviously their experiences were were so different than my own and the amount of doubt that they faced early on in their careers was so different than for myself personally. Many of them were the first women in their families to even consider a career in science, unlike me who grew up around women in STEM everywhere. And so I can't help but think and be so deeply grateful for the fact that, again, I keep saying this over and over, but that I had that I had really amazing role models, that I had really amazing mentors who, while I didn't totally understand this problem around women in science and minorities in science, that they did and they did their best to make sure that I was lifted up and felt held because I saw that this was not the experience of every woman um, around me in my program. And speaking of Iran, you actually went back to visit during the first travel ban, right? Um, you know, which is something that shouldn't have been an issue and it wouldn't have been an issue just a year ago, but it turns out it was an issue. So when you're in Iran visiting, what was your experience? What was going through your mind? There was uh, a lot of fear and anxiety initially because I, I was born here in America and I grew up feeling very much like an American, but an American who had this other side to me, who um, grew up with many of the traditions of Iranian culture. And, you know, perhaps that's, that, that's in part why I was so attracted to science and engineering, because Iran has this rich culture of science and engineering. And, you know, I, I'd had experiences growing up where I learned, you know, right after 9-11, I learned that that, that part of my identity of being an Iranian American could be problematic for people because, you know, I was just in eighth grade and I grew up in the suburbs of New York and I heard a rumor that there was this girl, or I heard that there was this girl who was spreading a rumor about me and my family that we were members of the Taliban, which is so completely absurd because we're just this, you know, boring family, like a doctor and an engineer and, you know, two kids, very cookie, cookie cutter family who just happened to be um, from Iran. And this rumor started spreading and it was so deeply hurtful and painful because I, as an American, was grieving after this incredible loss, this incredible tragedy. And I felt excluded and I like I wasn't allowed to grieve with with the rest of my country, men and women. And I think that has acutely been in the back of my brain, you know, learning that you are different at such a young age and that people will very quickly turn to judge you. And that being in Iran during that travel ban felt very much like that times a thousand you know, I, I know that Islamophobia has been growing in this country. I know the rhetoric around Iran um, has been so negative in this country, but but it felt like 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 a rejection of of me. You know, my my parents, if my parents were trying to come to America today, 
they wouldn't be allowed to. And they met here in this country and they fell in love here in this country and they got married here in this country and they had me and my brother here in this country and that would not have been possible. I wouldn't have been possible under this administration. And, you know, all of this is coursing through my brains, disjointed as it's coming out right now as I'm talking to you, but but it was extremely depressing and, and dark. We're watching all of this play out on the Iranian news, which is, which happens to be state-sponsored. And so they, you know, play the same clips over and over and over again. And then I went out of the house for a bit to, to go on a walk and I came back and I see that there's this new clip that's playing. And uh, I look on the screen and I see that there are images of protests that are breaking out all around the country. And there's people in JFK and in Dallas Airport and they're holding signs that say, um, love Trump's hate and no ban, no wall and Muslims are welcome here. And, sorry. And I've always been sort of protest averse. It feels kind of like preaching to the choir or preaching for a change that might not ever come. But I saw in that moment that Americans were expressing themselves in a way that the administration was not. That when, that when an administration's policies run counter to how we feel as Americans and the values that we hold, that we have this amazing power to gather and protest and raise our voices and our signs and say that this is exactly who we are and it'll make it all the way out into the rest of the world onto Iranian state-sponsored television, no less. And in that moment, I felt so proud to be, to be an American and so proud of, of all of these people that were coming to support people like my family, people like me, who have been targeted by this administration it felt incredibly empowering and uniquely American and, and a real push for change. You know, there's this quote from Neera Tandem, and Neera Tandem is the president for the Center of American Progress. And there's a quote that's pinned to the top of her Twitter page, and it says, I don't think the country has understood how psychologically wounding it was to so many women that Trump won after the Access Hollywood tapes. You know, I think about that quote a lot as a woman. And as an African-American, as a woman of color, and, you know, after all the vitriol and the misogyny that's been spewed against, you know, those those groups, you know, I feel a, a level of anxiety in circumstances that a year ago I wouldn't have felt. Um, and I'm curious as to what your experience has been, you know, given your experience when you were younger after 9-11, and then again, given your experience, you know, while you were traveling in Iran, you know, and, you know, being the daughter of, of Amherst. I was just curious as to, you know, whether you feel safe. You know, it's interesting. I never really considered myself in any way an activist or drawn towards activism. You know, of course, I've been an advocate for women in the sciences and for underrepresented minorities in the sciences. 
Um, but I never felt like like an activist or called to it until that is. I, I felt very much like every single one of my identities were under attack. You know, I'm a woman. I am a daughter of immigrants. I am a scientist. I'm specifically an Iranian-American. But I do live in New York City, and it is very much in many ways a safe space because it's a place where every single one of those identities is embraced. And it really drives home for me how important it is to focus on our own communities. And because I think it's very easy for somebody to abstractly say that, you know, Iranians are bad or that scientists are self-interested or that people of color are thugs or terrorists. But it's much harder for people to make those sorts of those same sorts of assertions when they're face to face with somebody who holds one of those identities and is there telling their stories to them. That's telling their experiences, sharing their experiences and finding common ground. But but of course, there is a trade off there because we can't expect marginalized communities, especially ones that are that find that their lives are constantly at risk or under threat to stand up for themselves in places where they don't feel safe, you know, but there are places and there are different forms of media. And that's why I think that the rise of social media is, you know, there, there's negatives for sure, but there are also a lot of places to hope for because they're remote places that allow you to make your voice heard in a way that can feel more safe, if, if that makes sense. So, so I, from my, you know, sort of liberal bubble in New York have really been trying to put my story out there through storytelling, through my writing, with my words, with, you know, anyone who will interview me like now say what I have to say. And, you know, I, I don't show up at a Trump rally where people are shouting, you know, death to Islam or make America great again or let's, you know, bomb Iran. Um, but I can still put myself out there without necessarily put it. And, and, you know, with the protests that have been growing um, around the country, I can show up with my sign. I can speak up around allies and make my voice heard, make my body seen in a way that feels safe and supported, but also vocal in a way that can be amplified and spread and have some sort of impact. You know, you are a really great storyteller. Actually, um, speaking of stories, I've been listening to your stories on Story Collider. And for those listeners who don't know, Story Collider is a podcast or a weekly show that's produced in Queens, I believe. And it was started by two physicists. And it brings true personal stories about science um, to life. Uh, that's that's the that's a description of the show. So, what's storytelling about for you? Um, I I think that the story format is so incredibly powerful. Uh, I'm also in the middle of getting trained as a community organizer, and we talk a lot about storytelling. Because it's, it's so easy to reject facts that don't align with your perspective or personality or worldview. But if you can embed those pieces of evidence, those truths, into a narrative that is personal to you, it is much harder for somebody to say to you, no, your experience is false. 
because my experience is subjective and it's felt and you can feel the effects of, you know, for instance, climate change. You can feel the effects of an immigration ban. And because it's your experience, because it's who you are, it's much harder for someone to turn around and say, well, you know, immigrants are mostly criminals or all Iranians are terrorists or climate change is a globalist hoax. I see. That makes sense. So you kind of counter the falsehoods with your own story. But, you know, I'm a little stuck on the community organizing. I I actually didn't know that you could go through training for that. How are you training as a community organizer? Well, I'm currently doing it through Organizing for Action, which has these six-week-long community engagement fellowships. And really, you know, the, the sort of overarching arc of the of the fellowship is that organizing takes organization and it gives you the sort of uh, organizational framework to put together some sort of event that is targeted towards a very specific goal and can empower the community around you to amplify voices and to really push people with power through a local event to do what is in all of our best interests. And, you know, the the snippet that I love the most from the program that got me interested in it was how do we take power away from Washington, D.C. lawmakers and bring it back to the people and to the people that are closest to us that are meant to be representing our interests. So you're the head of the New York chapter of 500 Women Scientists. And one of their pledges, I think, is to step outside of research and communicate science and engage the public. So how are you accomplishing that given this, you know, anti-fact, anti-science climate? So I think about it as trying to shatter the idea of what a scientist looks like, of who a scientist is. There's a stereotype that we're these people who are locked up in the ivory tower conducting mad experiments just to see if we can do whatever crazy outlandish ideas we might have. And so I think of it as really stepping out and saying, this is what a scientist looks like. These are the sorts of things that we're interested in. We're fundamentally interested in benefiting society in some way. So trying to have those sorts of interactions with the public where we can rebuild trust and faith where it didn't exist or the relationship has somehow deteriorated. And I think a lot about going back to the local level. You know, universities are centered within communities. And so trying to talk about our research with the people that are around us. I went to the Rockefeller University, which is this walled off four blocks of New York City. And people walk by and they wonder all the time, you know, what is this gated community? And very few get to cross over and see that, oh, it's this group of scientists who are working to combat all of these different diseases because we are a biomedical research university and, and who are thinking about pushing the barriers of knowledge. And so, you know, someone who has been so wonderful at my own particular university in doing this is Uh, This woman named Jeannie Garbarino, who a few years ago started an outreach lab within Rockefeller, where she invites students, particularly from underserved neighborhoods around the city, into Rockefeller's walls and has them conduct research, has them talk and interact with the different scientists that are working there. And it's gone a long way in raising awareness about what happens within the Rockefeller community. And it's really created this great dialogue and engagement between the community and our university where I don't think it existed that as much before. 
And so here in New York, we're, we're really trying to partner with all of these amazing outreach initiatives that already exist around the city and work with them to bring, you know, the next generation of young inquiring minds together with the more established older generations, bring them together to appreciate science, to appreciate evidence-based policymaking and how it can work for them and to show them that women just like them tend to be scientists. So that's what we're trying to do here. And we're also tackling this from a different number of angles, partnering with different organizations, trying to write op-eds, trying to hold um, public events where we have women speakers come and talk about their science, where we invite people to come learn a little bit more about our research and really tackling community engagement from every angle that we can really possibly think of. So you're a molecular biologist by training and you're switching from academia to policy. Was there any precipitation moment that prompted this shift for you? You know, I think there was no one precipitating moment other than I have this belief that science not communicated is science not done. From the first sort of moment that I entered my PhD program, I wanted to do science with a public face. So I started when I first came to Rockefeller, this series, and it was called Art Lab, and it was meant to pair scientists and artists together for a conversation about their work, really trying to use the lens of art as a way to drive a conversation about science. Because I think that art and the power of art can emotionally prime you to be more receptive to information, can help you feel information more in your gut that is a little more complicated or nuanced. And so as I was doing that, I was having a lot of fun. I was running these public events, but I was also finding that my audience was very much people who were like me, not not in that they were scientists, but they were people that were just sort of generally curious or already had this appetite for science. And I, I wanted to find a way to not just preach to the choir about how amazing science is, but to really embed science in society very seamlessly. And that brought me to the world of policy, because if you're creating good policies, you're hopefully incorporating all of the benefits of scientific research, of scientific evidence into policies that then make their way into people's everyday lives and hopefully improve them. And maybe then you can go back and say, oh, that nice thing that you really appreciate, well, here's the science behind it. I began to see that policy was this way to serve society the most broadly that I could with science, with scientific evidence. So that was sort of the evolution of my thinking and where my, with air quotes around it, extracurricular activities during my graduate program brought me. You'd written an article about attending a hearing, um, a hearing with the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. And you'd written about how you were surprised to find that, you know, during that hearing, Republicans were in support of a bill that would support research for climate science, right? And I think the bill was around solar energy and electricity storage. But there was a catch. There was a catch for that support. And it was around the way the bill was written in relation to basic and applied research. So what's the difference? So basic research is also called fundamental research. And unfortunately, it's a bad PR move on the scientific community side, especially because now basic means something very specific in millennial circles, and it's not really a good thing. But 
basic research is essentially exploratory research. It's hypothesis driven, but it's not necessarily towards a goal that has a very obvious application. So it's not like we're deciding to study this one particular protein because we know that it will solve cancer in the end somehow. Then the applied research side is research into how exactly we can take a finding and make it work as an actual application. So in biomedical research, how can we apply the finding to create a drug or a therapy? And we call that in the field going from bench to bedside. And some of the greatest achievements that we enjoy every day are actually the products of basic research, of this kind of exploratory brand of research where we're really pushing the boundaries of our understanding of science. And a great example of this is Albert Einstein's theory of relativity, which we're taught as this very sort of abstract and pure concept. But it was really able to be applied to give us the GPS navigation that we now enjoy on our smartphones and without which I would at at the very least be lost. So, you know, put sort of a different way, basic research is fundamental for pushing the envelope in science, for pushing at the boundaries of our knowledge. But it's also something that might not have an immediate bottom line or the bottom line is not very clear. And so there isn't much incentive for industry, for private industry, to fund basic research because you're not guaranteed that in the end you'll have a marketable product. And that's why government support for basic research is so incredibly important because without the government's support to push these sorts of more abstract questions, um, this, this sort of brand of exploratory science, we wouldn't end up at these applied solutions because we wouldn't be creating new ground for discoveries, uh, for applied discoveries to grow. But regarding this specific bill, there is something intentional around using basic versus applied research, correct? I mean, so you describe in the article that you were bamboozled. Can you explain what happened? So essentially what this bill was proposing was that they would fund basic research that is geared towards solar energy innovations, towards, I think it was specifically uh, solar energy storage. And what they were saying was that they will support research that specifically benefits basic research only. So that's the kind of exploratory, curiosity-driven research that doesn't necessarily have a stated goal other than creating new knowledge that could potentially be applied. And so this is where it gets tricky because they don't want to support research that had a specific intended application. But in the field of energy innovation, all of your research is done, even if it's the sort of, you know, exploratory type, with the intended goal that at some point downstream you will have an application. So is this weird way of restricting research that would hopefully have an application, restricting that funding, so that only the research that couldn't have an application would be funded? And it's this weird kind of doublespeak, especially because within at least this current House Science Committee, there has not been much support for basic research because the Republican thinking, at least as I think about it, is that, oh, free markets will take care of everything. So if science is very beneficial, private industry will fund it, which leaves out basic research because, again, it's this exploratory, curiosity-driven branch of research where you might not have an application at the end of it, other than that you know we've learned something new and we have different leads that we can follow in the future. 
So this was on one hand, you know, I'm sitting in the audience and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like this is amazing. They want to support basic research. Why are Democrats so mad? And I went back and I watched the video from the session over and over again. And, you know, it's really like pretty boring and tedious, but I ended up transcribing it and doing some mental arithmetic and found out why this was so bad. And it turned out it's because you're sort of nipping any kind of application in the bud at the funding level. And, you know, it was this real eye opening moment for me because I think that we often characterize Republicans or you know, at least House Republicans, Senate Republicans as being quite stupid. But here, Lamar Smith was doing something that seemed quite uh, adept. Here he was doing something that was like so tricky and devious, taking something that scientists really would love more support for, which is basic research, and kind of wielding it against us so that we wouldn't be able to push forward uh, research into um, energy innovation. Um, And the reason that I had learned more about Lamar Smith to begin with is because he was using the House Science Committee to initiate a sort of witch hunt on behalf of ExxonMobil, just trying to find a way to subpoena all of these different groups that were investigating ExxonMobil so they could find some evidence of wrongdoing on these advocacy groups parts to nip that investigation. Do you feel like you lost a bit of your innocence, your naivete after this experience? You know, I had known for some time that the Republican majority House Science Committee was up to some shenanigans. But I think it's very easy within the scientific community to think that science skeptics or science deniers are stupid. And if only we could give them more information, they would understand it. But there are certain people in high ranks of power, and I think Representative Smith is one of them, who are actually very adept at taking science and taking what experts say and kind of reorganizing it and weaponizing it against scientific interests. So I think we're doing just, I think we within the scientific community, within the science advocacy community, are doing ourselves a disservice to assume that the people that are on the other side of the, it's it's not even a debate, who are denying evidence, um, who are quick to deny science, are stupid and that they don't understand it. Because we're not, in response, bringing our best thinking to the table if we're just shortchanging what the other side might be thinking. Right, right. And I think it, I alluded to this offline. We were talking about this. I've never actually believed that, you know, the, the for instance, like climate deniers who were politicians were um, scientifically illiterate. I've never believed that because it takes a certain level of intellectual um cleverness to get to that level of government in in most cases there's some cases where you know they are very smart and they do you know rise but in in a lot of cases these are pretty intelligent people so i i could never make the connection between why they were you know pretending to be less literate than they actually were i mean the thing is is that i believe that they understand the science. Like if the average liberal who is not a scientist can understand the effects of climate change, so can conservative politicians, right? Yes, um, exactly. I think it's good that you drew a distinction between conservative politicians and conservatives, because I do think that when you look at the party as a whole, it's not necessarily reflective of whatever ideology the leadership has. But in the case of somebody like Representative Smith, 
he gets a ton of money from big oil interests. So when you are bought by these interests who the science goes against, then of course you're going to fight on behalf of your financial benefactors as opposed to the people that you're actually serving. So you had efforts like Well, last summer, there was a growing campaign called hashtag Exxon New, and it came out that ExxonMobil had known about climate change and the effects of climate change as early as, I believe it was the 60s. And they had funneled a lot of money into propaganda and research to counter that evidence because it didn't align with their financial motives. So it just goes to show you that it's not stupidity, that keeps people from accepting scientific consensus. It's often money. And I think we're doing ourselves, again, a huge disservice to just assume that people that are against science and government are stupid. You look at you know, two of the most adept people in the Trump cabinet, Scott Pruitt, who is very skillfully undermining a lot of the really great work that the EPA has done over the years. And Jeff Sessions, who, again, has thought a lot about How do we take away protections for the most marginalized communities in the country? And they're doing this very quietly and very skillfully because they've thought a lot about how do we best undermine the good science that runs counter to all of our policy motives. So that actually brings me to my next point. You know, I think a lot of liberals assume that science will always align with their views and their values. And I think that um, you've probably heard of this quote, this well-known quote that says facts have a well-known liberal bias. But, you know, when scientists begin to align themselves with one side or the other, you know, this push for scientists to run for office or to get involved with the redistricting projects with data science, you know, you run the risk of aligning yourself too closely with one side or the other with the assumption that one side will always be on the side of what's right and the other side will always be on the side of what what isn't right. You know, but that's not the way science works. Science is subjective and sometimes it's going going to fall the way your ally wants and sometimes it's going to fall the way your ally doesn't want. It's, it's unfortunate that that's the way that politics has become polarized in America. America today. So someone who I really like who talks about science advocacy a lot is this climate scientist who is also an evangelical Christian uh, named Catherine Hayhoe. She talks a lot about how we need to communicate science and appeal to people's values. So not just throwing facts at them. Because I think You talk to people who perhaps identify as Republican because they have certain Christian values and they find that their identity is best served broadly under the umbrella of the Republican Party. So if you talk to them about, like, you know, what are your Christian values, you believe in charity, you believe in helping people who are less fortunate than yourselves. Well, climate change is something that affects people who are often the most vulnerable, And it seems like when you can align the scientific evidence and what the science is telling us with people's values, with how it benefits society, with how it benefits them personally, setting aside whatever party loyalty they have, then perhaps you can shift the balance a little bit. And I think that's what we're seeing right now with the healthcare debate, is that a lot of people do really value science because medicine is the product of biomedical research and people want access to that, uh, to the good that science has done, which is why this current Senate bill is so incredibly unpopular. And so I... You know, I I find myself having to do a lot of active work saying that 
oh, you know, Republicans don't hate scientists. It's some vocal Republican lawmakers who have tried to villainize certain kinds of scientists by appealing to people's values or their fears. And they're trying to spread that out to their constituents. I think that our our lawmakers are not often reflective of the values that we hold because they're being dishonest, really. So if scientists can be better advocates for policy because they'll support policies that are based on fact and evidence, then they have to start venturing into some uncomfortable territory. I mean, one of the things that politicians possess, one of the traits that they possess is being chameleon-like, right? They adapt to their audiences. And scientists are often only comfortable speaking to one type of audience, and it's typically their peers and other people who are scientifically literate. I think it's very important before you engage in some sort of advocacy effort that you first know your audience, which is something that I've learned as I've been making my way into the science communication world. The most effective conversations that you can have are when you understand where a person is coming from and when you can speak to them where they are already. Because you can't change people's minds if you're sending them the message that completely does not align with what they believe in, with the values that they hold, with their worldview. So I want to talk a bit about the article that you wrote for Courts, which is how I originally found your work. I was doing some research on gerrymandering and I saw your article and it was titled, Scientists, Your Mission is to Save U.S. Democracy. Do you accept? And that article was about scientists using their skills of data analysis to fight partisan gerrymandering. So what prompted you to look into and write about gerrymandering? I I had been thinking a lot about the history of voting rights in our country. Uh, You know, right after the election, I read Ari Berman's book, Give Us the Ballot, about the history of voting rights in America. And I was also thinking about, you know, the history of redistricting, particularly because of this Election Integrity Commission that's being led right now by Chris Kobach, which I think is, you know, the complete opposite of the purpose of a representative democracy, trying to find ways to systematically take away the vote from people who have beliefs that run counter to your own. Like that is the antithesis of what a democracy is all about. Democracy in my mind is that we shouldn't all feel like we're going to win 100% of the time. It should be a compromise and we should be having tough conversations to try to serve as many people as possible. So I found my way to the issue of gerrymandering because it's in large part how our politics has gotten so incredibly polarized. Because you have these very safe engineered districts that have been designed to win the Republican side 100% of the time. And there's more opportunity here for corruption to be introduced because, you know, if you don't have to serve your constituents to the best of your ability in order to win a seat, because you're going to win it anyway, you can get rich in politics and keep your seat. And that's terrible, right? That's not why this country was founded in the first place, to escape from kings. So I just come across this piece from Carl Rove that was uh, an op-ed written in 2010 and published in the Wall Street Journal. And it completely blew my mind because so many people had read this and 
it somehow still slipped under the radar or maybe people didn't take it seriously, but essentially he laid out this plan to execute what was called Project Red Map. And it fundamentally changed the way that redistricting was done. The basic strategy was to capture the state legislature, to invest all of this money in gaining specific seats in state legislatures in specific states. And the state legislatures would draw district lines and they could draw these district lines in a way that ensured victory for Republicans so that they could end up retaking the House after redistricting was done. And I was also, you know, as I'm as I'm learning about Project Red Map and the role that redistricting has played in our politics, I was also seeing that following the 2016 election, there were a lot of scientists who were starting to run for office or were at least interested in running for office. And so after the election, this PAC was formed called the 314 PAC or Pi PAC because 3.14 is Pi. And it's for, you know, scientists who want to run for office and would understand the humor of this name. And I found that a lot of these scientists were saying like, oh, I want to run for Senate or, oh, I want to run for the House of Representatives because those seem like, I don't know, maybe more glamorous jobs or more high profile jobs. And I was thinking to myself, you know, is this really the best use of our expertise or are there other places at more local levels of government that could have huge impacts on how local politics are done or national politics. And so I started thinking, you know, what if more scientists ran for state legislatures, which are responsible, again, for drawing district lines? And so if the idea of Project Redmap was to take data and engineer very precisely gerrymandered districts, then perhaps scientists who are used to handling data and thinking about data and thinking about evidence, who are also very much committed to democracy, whether it's you know Republicans or Democrats, if we can get more of them running for state legislatures, more of them responsible for drawing uh, the district lines, with the census coming up in 2020, then perhaps this would be a really great use of scientists who are looking to get more involved in politics. You know, hopefully we can use sound science, sound evidence, sound decision-making to, to go as close back to one person, one vote as we possibly can, because this is really the goal of a representative democracy. So your ask is for scientists to not only get involved at the national and federal levels, but also to get involved at the local level, correct? Yes. And also this could go for anything. It could go for a board of education. If you're unhappy with the way that evolution might be sidelined in your particular school district or climate science could be sidelined in your particular school district. That's that's a really great way to get involved and make change at a very local level that could have a big impact in shaping future generations and their relationships to science, their relationships to evidence. So maybe this isn't a fair question, but Do you think that scientists make good politicians? I mean, the traits that make a good politician are the exact opposite of what makes a good scientist, right? And in order for a politician to be successful, you have to successfully appeal to the emotions of their target audience. And I think, you know, Al Gore and Bill Clinton are good examples of how to do this um, in the way that they talk about climate change, for instance, right? They can appeal to the emotions of their audience and talk about science. 
And this isn't something that really comes easily to most scientists, right? I also think that it's important to elect politicians who are at the very least willing to work with scientists. So there's many different ways to get involved. And it's not that I think that scientists would make great politicians, but I do think that people who are good at evaluating evidence, who are open to speaking to experts, would probably be the ones that would do the best job uh, in evaluating evidence and thinking about science in those positions. You know, you also mentioned in the same article, the Union of Concerned Scientists, and one of their missions is to use data science to create fairer, less partisan maps for redistricting. But I feel like given everything that's already happened with redistricting and gerrymandering, that the window for action on that is closing. Is that is that correct? Yeah, you know, Part of me wonders whether this Election Integrity Commission and the attention that it's garnered with so many states refusing to turn over information might be an opening for more people to learn about this very quiet war that's been waging to take away the vote from as many people as possible. For myself, I don't think that I really appreciated it until at the time candidate Trump was saying that, you know, we need to police the polling stations because there are going to be people who come and they're trying to vote illegally. And, you know, after the election, talking about millions of illegally cast votes, all for Hillary Clinton, which is very suspicious. And, you know, that that brought me into reading more and learning more about where the idea comes from. This idea that there are people that are trying to vote illegally and spreading that idea and that fear around the country. And it's one that has been very long established in this country, unfortunately. And it's one that many people, including myself, have turned a blind eye to. So I do feel like this, you know, voting rights, gerrymandering is the single biggest concern that I have with this particular administration, you know, more more than even climate change. Because we can't vote for science, we can't vote for climate action, we can't even call ourselves a democracy unless everybody can vote, unless everybody has a say. And so the Union of Concerned Scientists has historically been a science advocacy organization advocating for evidence-based policymaking very broadly. And they are just now starting this initiative around voting. But, you know, organizations like the Brennan Center at NYU Uh, have done a lot of really great work around this particular issue of voting rights. And I would recommend that your listeners check them out. And also to check out, again, Ari Berman's book that sort of led me down this path called Give Us the Ballot to learn more and to orient themselves in this battle that's been, you know, taking place for essentially since this country was founded. You know, it's funny, all of my guests at some point have mentioned voting rights as being a primary issue for them and for me as well. I mean, that's the issue that I think keeps me up at night. And without, you know, equal access to the ballot, I think everything else is moot. The cabinet appointment that has continued to keep me up at night the most is really Jeff Sessions because this is his... It's been his battle for his entire career, ensuring that people who don't look like him, who don't think like him, can't vote. And he's extremely skilled at doing it. He's invested a lot of time and energy and thought into doing it. And yes, I mean, again, I think it's the single biggest issue that is facing our democracy right now, because without the right to vote, we just don't have a democracy. So for the listeners, tell us three things that we can all do. Constituents, scientists, anyone who's listening, what are three things that you think are the most helpful? 
So one thing that I keep asking anybody, scientists, non-scientists, is to tell me specifically and to tell organizations like 500 Women Scientists, Union of Concerned Scientists, you know, tweet at us, tell us in person why science matters in your life and why you think science is important because it really helps. As we're thinking of the stories that need to be told and need to be highlighted from the scientific community, it helps to know, you know, why science matters for people who aren't within our community so that we're not just seen as this sort of interest group so that we're seen as a group that is really trying to help as many people as possible and to represent the needs of as many people as possible another is to again get involved in watching what happens around voting rights what happens around gerrymandering because again if we can't get as close as possible to a representative democracy we can never vote for science we can never vote for climate we can never vote for our interests as a collective whole society. And I think really paying close attention, voting in every single election, supporting candidates that have a respect for evidence is one of the greatest things that you can do to support not only scientists, but to support everything that this country should stand for. And I guess the last thing I'll say is in every interaction that you have, try the best of your ability to hold empathy. And, you know, yes, there are, of course, horrible, hateful trolls, and they have conveniently placed deplorable in front of their Twitter handle, and they don't deserve your empathy. But there are also people whose ignorance can be moved, can be ameliorated. And for me, it's something that I have been struggling with a great deal, but it's this muscle that I think is one that can, that I, that I can really practice flexing more because I think ultimately it has such a profound impact to listen to people and help them feel heard. I think it's one that as women, we have a particular gift for, and we can really use that to our advantage at every possible chance. Dr. Miriam Zeringhalem, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been a true pleasure. You are very most welcome. Thank you for having me. Hi, it's Jen, your podcast host. You know, one of the things I said I wanted to do with this podcast was to give listeners something actionable to do, some solutions. So I just wanted to recount some of the things that I learned during the conversation today with Miriam. So one of the most important things that I learned is that we really, really have to support our scientists, right? And you don't have to be a scientist to get involved in these organizations like, you know, the Union of Concerned Scientists or the 314 organization or 500 Women Scientists. You can follow them on social media. You can support them financially. Also, we need to hold our politicians accountable, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. We need to make sure that they're supporting science-based policies. That's incredibly important. And if you're a scientist, consider running yourself, running for office at any level, the local level, at the national level, consider running because we really need to support science and we really need to support fact. The other thing that I took from this conversation was the importance of paying attention to voting rights and to gerrymandering. So I'll put a link to the article that we discussed during the podcast on the website, but it's really important to understand what happened with Project Red Map. And you should also read Ari Berman's book, Give Us the Ballot. It's so important. So there you have it. Keep up the good fight and thank you for listening.